coffee machine everyone we are at it again artist journal january 18th 2023 broadcasting live from berlin and new york city on rug radio via twitter spaces my name is adrian pokebelli and we welcome back our co-host runetune it's glad to be i'm glad to be back here he is back from mexico and it's great to hear his voice again <laughs> and we are also going to give a big boston dynamics welcome to our special guest in today's salon rare who we are still connecting with here and he is out of california you've probably seen his paintings of robot dogs on your twitter screen before and they are wonderful so we're thrilled to have them runetune how are things going with you it's great. I'm back in the swing of things here in New York. Had a really great week in Mexico. Um, it was my second time visiting. I went with a couple friends. Uh, one of them uh, has some family in the state of Jalisco. So that's where we were at. Uh, got to explore Guadalajara. Uh, went to uh, Tlaquepaque and his family's town, uh, Tenemaxlan. And so it was a, a really fantastic trip a little bit of reconnecting with the real world. <laughs> we can get pretty wrapped up in our digital spaces, or at least I know I can. So it was a really great trip. I feel refreshed and I'm uh, happy to be back. How is your week going, Pocobelli? Well, absolutely. And just before I go into my week, I mean, Mexico sounds like so much fun and that sounds like such a fun trip. I mean, you went to so many different places and yeah, yeah I mean, last, well, last year at this time, I was in Athens and it was fabulous. And this year I'm not. I mean, the bull market has taken a turn and I probably bought too much digital art in the meantime. So no trip this year, uh, but uh, I'm doing well out here. I mean, it's been a warm winter, as probably a lot of you have heard in Europe. So that definitely softens the blow out here because it can be quite cold and kind of bitter out in, uh, yeah. out in Berlin. Oh, I see Rare here. I'm going to bring him on and uh hold on here invite to co-host with us and so yeah and were you able to uh, look at any uh nfts while you're out or did you completely unplug runetune uh i basically completely unplugged i would i would get on twitter at night um i'm still catching up on your artist journal i think i'm at 117 but uh yeah i i, I basically unplugged there was just too much happening during the day and it was it was good to unplug. You know, everyone needs to unplug every now and then. But, you know, that being said, I saw some incredible things. I visited um, this distillery in tequila called Fortaleza and uh, ate far too many tacos. And uh, yeah, it was it was a great trip. <laughs> it sounds amazing. And uh, tacos are one of my favorite things. We had them at New Year's actually over here. I see Rare has showed up. Rare, how are things going for you? How has your week been? I mean, it looks pretty exciting, actually. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, it's it's like 6.30 in the morning for me. But uh, 
my week's been insane. It's it's still been very surreal processing the things that have been happening since uh, the all time high last week. And uh, Runtu, there's no such thing as too many tacos. So if you guys are <laughs> ever in California, please. Yes, another uh, holy grail of taco destinations. Well, you know, if we ever have the uh, Tezos party that Ile is talking about, well, we might have to have tacos as the main food then, since I think we're all, at least up here on stage, are all agreed. And if anybody ever wants to speak, just put in a request, and one of the co-hosts or me, myself will bring you up. I see JRD, I see mech.txt, I see Santiago, I see Rustic, I see Ali Isakoski. I see Purple Drank, I see Skorma. So another all-star cast here. So thank you everybody for tuning in. So rare, I mean, people are here to here to hear about NFTs and what's going on in the digital art scene. I mean, some pretty exciting stuff. And thank you again for accepting to come out here and join us, which I think, you know, once every couple of weeks or so, we're gonna figure it out. It's great to be able to go a little bit in depth with people. Uh, like yourself. So tell us about your week. I mean, I just, you know, I saw you put out a tweet yesterday. You made a sale, a remarkable sale on Tezos for like 24, 2,500 Tezos for a one of, was it a one of one? And and your market's been going kind of crazy since. Um, yeah, you know, the piece that was sold on Tezos, I didn't see that coming. I saw a couple offers throughout the week for uh, a lot less, but it was still an amazing number for like where I was just a couple months ago. And uh, that one of one, a good boy, which kind of kicked off this whole uh, spot journey with uh, Boston Dynamics dog. It was sold to a really good friend. I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with him. Uh, ADHD, also known as Colin. He's absolutely killing it right now with his abstract pieces. And uh, he sends me a message and is like, hey, I don't want to see this go, but I also know how important these sales are. He has a couple of my other Genesis, so he was just like, I'm going to sell it. And then he's such a standout dude. He sold it for, I believe, uh, yeah, 2,370 Tezos to Parkinac. And knowing Colin, ADHD, he's just going to put all that back into the Tezos marketplace. That guy loves sharing and buying art. So you should definitely, definitely consider having him on the show one day he's done so much for the space for a lot of smaller artists well absolutely i mean yeah definitely forward his contact i've probably come across his work for all i know i've actually shown his work on the show i mean i come across people all the time and they say hey uh why don't you show some of my work on the show and then i'll look at their work and i'll be like oh i think i did it like six weeks ago <laughs> or two or three months ago anyways that's pretty exciting for you and so did you like did this come out of nowhere? Because I was looking, you even sold an edition of ten for four hundred, which looks like this morning, maybe while you were asleep. Maybe you haven't even seen that yet. But has, has things been? No, I'm looking at it right now. This is crazy. Yeah. So it's kind of funny what a big sale can do. And so just tell us a little bit then about your trajectory. Like when did you join the space? And you know, like just tell us a little bit about your story of how you got to where you were, just in a few sentences. Well, it's pretty wild. Um, I think it was a YouTube video that got me into NFTs. It's kind of embarrassing to say, but I was pretty heavy into crypto a couple of years ago. And I got wrecked, of course, as most of us did in like 2018. And uh, my YouTube algorithm remembers this. So uh, one day I was just on the computer getting work done. And I was just going through, uh, just putting something on the background. And there was like a 
one of those kitschy thumbnails and titles like how you can get rich on nfts and this was early 2021 so the initial covid closures and all that stuff was already happening we were kind of like going through our dystopian future and uh i was just like what are nfts and i started looking more and more into it and it combined like the best of both worlds you know i was always fascinated by bitcoin and a bunch of other shit coins that have absolutely gone to zero since 2018. And also I was, uh, I went to college to be a painter. You know, I just found ways to disappoint my mom. And I was like, yeah, I'll go to school, but I'm going to learn how to paint. So to see something that combined both worlds was just amazing. And I started diving into it. And uh, I think most people were minting on Ethereum at the time. Uh, Hicket Nunk wasn't even a, a thought yet. And it wasn't until maybe about March of, I think, 2021 that um, another gentleman, I saw his work and it was amazing. And uh, his name is Crestube. Uh, I, I know a lot of old school Tesla's people are going to remember him. He still makes work. His incredible work. I love the guy. He was making art and uh, Hens or Hickok Nunk's uh, UX UI was Really amazing, but also not intuitive at all. It was really odd. Like most UX UI in the space is still kind of uh, antiquated. And I had no idea what I was doing. No idea what Tezos was. I just remember it being like one of the biggest ICOs back in 2018. And he showed me how to mint after uh, I spent a few months minting on Ethereum and there wasn't a lot of traction. It was really hard. You would see other people just gain like just do amazing numbers off the gate or uh, pfp projects i don't even know if uh board apes was a thing yet and it was just insane but uh there was something special about the early days of hen and still with the tezos chain where it seemed to be more art centric art forward and it was mostly other artists minting and collecting and like it gave us a taste of what it would have felt like to be like a whale where you could just randomly look at a piece of art and yeah, it was an addition of like a hundred, but you could just buy it for one Tezos. Like you didn't even have to like check. There was no, uh, the gas transactions were next to nothing. So I spent my first year solid with like little small breaks, um, minting on Tezos. And, um, it was amazing. Again, like you could explore, you can mint stuff. I think it's funny that a lot of people are commenting on the, open editions on Manifold or their larger editions on Manifold. This has been something that's been going on uh, Tezos for like the entire time. It was hard to sell a 101 on Tezos. So I would try to find my voice because prior to minting NFTs, I'd taken a break from painting and it was exciting because digital painting had just become so much more accessible and easy. I don't use a Wacom. I use a, I use a Procreate. Uh, I'm sorry. I use Procreate and an iPad. So to be able to just pull your iPad out wherever and just work on a painting for a little bit without worrying about solvents or mixing colors and all that just made it so much easier. And yeah, I just kept grinding away on object and hen. And eventually I kind of took a small break because it was just, it was discouraging because it just felt like no one was watching, you know, you're, you're making all this artwork and you're proud of it, but it's like the other people respond. And unfortunately in this world, the metric is usually with sales. And I, I just wasn't making 
any major sales or anything. And so I, I kind of let NFTs take a back seat. And out of nowhere, I got a DM from someone that said they were Cosmo. And uh, of course, I thought I was like a hacker. Or <laughs> I was like, this isn't him. I clicked on the link and I'm like, oh, crap, this is really his account. And he just gave me words of encouragement and was like, hey, I've been looking at your stuff. I've had uh, a bunch of your artwork open on uh, tabs. And I just wanted to say I really like your work. And I was blown away. This is the first time anyone had reached out like that. It's it's usually like a shilling to like accounts or whatever. And um, it kind of like, you know, it made me feel really good that someone who was so well-respected in the space had acknowledged. And don't get me wrong, I was getting a lot of uh, uh, acknowledgement from like your your contemporaries and your peers, you know, everyone in the struggle. But that kind of changed things where I started to realize like, well, more people do see your work. Maybe they just don't say anything or anything, but I'm just going to make work for art's sake and just, yeah, just kind of do things on my term, but with a little bit more focus. What an incredible story. I had no idea. And it kind of makes me really glad that we brought you on and makes me want to do it with more people. I mean, so when did that happen then with Cosimo? I mean, there's so many things I want to ask you. I mean, this from the physicality yeah. of paint and everything. I'm noticing yeah, on your object, the first the first uh, item you uh, minted, Summerland, it's it's stating uh, March 2021. So what I'm I'm getting confused on the timeline here because this is a, you got a really interesting story. So you you joined Object um, in March 2021, but you were on Tezos through Hen beforehand. Uh, no, Object didn't exist. Got you in March 2021. Got you. It was Hen. Um, gotcha. If you guys remember, there was a there was some early I don't want to say drama. I was never in Discord, so I never understood what was going on. But um, I believe uh, was it Raphael or Rafa Crazy Patchwork? He created Hen, and uh, I'm in a little small DM chat group where his sister's in there with us too. But there were issues with. Uh, I'm not even too sure, honestly. It's been a while. And an object was born in response to Hen. And then Hen is now, you know, defunct to become Taya or whatever. But yeah, so March 2021 was when I first minted on Hen. And before that, I was doing stuff on Rarible and minting directly to Ob- uh, OpenSea. So. I was going to ask that. I don't know if I was on mute, but I, I was going to ask you what you were minting on before object because ethereum is very tricky to mint on at least it used to be uh now foundation is open but i had friends who were asking me where to mint and i'd tell them open c like i I didn't know because you know rarible for whatever reason didn't have that you know i don't know that uh that brand factor that collectors kind of gravitate to uh so that's super interesting and and when did cosimo reach out to you then because that sounds like a you know, and people can think whatever they want. I mean, but that's incredible. That's really cool that he did that, right? No, totally. I, I guess he had accumulated a couple pieces using a, an anonymous account so that wallet watchers wouldn't have just seen right away. Um, I got to look because, oddly enough, my DMs of Cosmo only go back maybe a couple conversations. I don't know what's going on with that. I can't find the original one, but I think I can look. Yeah, and if you're just guesstimating, that's cool too. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna guess about 
about almost a year ago, so February. So maybe a year into NFTs was when Cosmo had reached out. Interesting. Um, very, very cool. I mean, yeah. So he had his eyes on the Tezos chain a while before he had, uh, I guess, publicly was accumulating on it. So, well, this is one of the big things. Like, I mean, you mentioned it is you never know who's watching. And that's kind of one of the most exciting things I find about, you know, just posting your work, work online. Because, you know, as you were saying, you kind of, you know, I don't know how much you're in the traditional art world, but you learned at school traditional painting. And I assume at, during that time you went to galleries and whatever. Getting that kind of visibility is incredibly, frankly, difficult. And it's hard to do it without looking like you're trying to sell something or be desperate. I mean, the first thing that I was told when I went to Berlin is, you know, Adrian, stop selling yourself so much. And I didn't even realize I was. I was just talking about my work every so often. And, you know, and so uh, that visibility is so powerful. Now, speaking of visibility, uh, so when did you start with the dog? Because I think the Boston Dynamics dog, I mean, we totally associate it with you, at least I do. And I think like, you know, everybody's looking for a simple story when it comes to artists. And it's like with you and it's kind of great marketing. And I'm not saying that's what you're doing or anything. Things just work out that way. You know, Picasso, it's cubism. It's not like it was marketing. Um, with you, it's like the dog. When did you start with the dog? And I could see, did you notice like there was a lot of traction with that? Because all of a sudden you're the guy who does the dog paintings, right? It sounds so funny to say that, uh, <laughs> the dog painting, but I totally understand what you're saying. Um, I remember getting some advice early on about being a new artist and that in the current space that we're in, and also before that too, uh, just artists in general, that there's so much amazing work and well, some bad work, let's be honest. And it's hard to get recognized when you're new, you know, until you start creating a maybe a symbol or something that people can always tie to your name. And with the, the dog paintings, I, I've been fascinated by them for a while. They, they kind of scare me, but I also want one. Um, that idea developed with time, but I just thought it was funny. Uh, to do a painting of those of those dogs because they're they look silly, you know. They're they're bright yellow. They look kind of friendly, but anyone who saw Black Mirror, you know, you can't help but associate the Boston Dynamics with uh, that one episode where the woman's getting hunted, and also like the the videos where you see the the other robots moving and how they're they're able to like articulate open doors and stuff. So I the first painting I did of spot was kind of a silly one where it was uh it said beware of dog with gun because i walked by getting coffee one morning with my girlfriend and there was a beware of dog sign and i'm like yeah those are crazy i remember those you know the german shepherd face and yeah it's like a good deterrent and then um the person who also had that sign also had like a um nra sticker so it's like a national rifle association so you know in america guns are huge and uh you know to see that combination it's like well what is this person projecting it's like uh, definitely don't break into this guy's house and i was like that's scary you know <laughs> it's like this guy probably has like a big scary dog and he's uh advertising that he uh he has a gun and i'm like oh that'd be so funny to uh, 
imagine what like the the caution signs of the future would be where it's like beware of robotic dog or beware of that or you know it's like a almost like a home security sign and all that so um the idea kind of just it there was no like aha moment it was just like i was thinking about something silly and yeah it just kind of started painting it and the ideas were developing and then i realized that the dog was kind of like uh I don't want to say a symbol for the stuff that I was doing, but it, it is like a divisive symbol, right? Where for some people it's seen as a, a technological marvel. It's it's an invention, it's progress. And other people see it as something that this does not need to exist. Um, I think mostly because of the capacity of what they're thinking of it. It's, it's horrifying where they can see how it could be weaponized and used against other people. And um it's not for me to decide which one of that I want to project to the viewer. I just wanted to put it in situations where you could see it and come up with your own conclusion of it, or it's neither good or bad. You know, you just see the, the piece of work for what it is and you see the dog. And um, so I started painting it, <clears throat> but at the same time, I was also still painting still lives. And at that early, early venture, I think it was August of 2022, I was still manipulating AI. Uh, this was before mid-journey, or at least before mid-journey was accessible. And um, I was kind of just using a VQ again, using the, those Google Colabs to manipulate a, a reference photo, but only instead of like every 50 iterations where people have the machine running all night long and it's just, it's just coming up with these insane prompts. I, I let it run only two, three, four, five times before the image started getting so abstracted. And I love where it took it because it was just wild. I didn't, I couldn't imagine um, painting like that. I'm, I'm a pretty representational painter, even though I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself a realistic painter per se. But I, I paint when I see, and then I put like a little bit of like, you know, emotion or whatever little gestures in it. So I'd use that to manipulate reference photos. And I, I kept going with the painting and it felt nice to build a body of work that was more coherent. With digital art, you can paint so fast and you can produce so fast. It's just, you know, all the barriers are are gone you could literally wake up and paint for 10 minutes and have your whole setup or you can um you know you don't have to worry about mixing paint or solvents you can just do your thing wake up and paint or uh, literally bring your your setup to a coffee shop and paint and i was talking to a few friends of mine who were doing amazing work and we talked about how in this space because everything's digital and because you're 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 kind of in an echo chamber there's probably only a couple thousand of us but uh, everyone's work everyone's production is like insane it just seems like everyone's making work so fast and the only way to stand out without having an initial big name or some kind of a amazing breakout is to kind of just shove it down people's faces and you know it's kind of like with the pepes and everything too it's like keep doing this keep doing this keep doing this and I feel it's a good thing too. It's, it shows discipline to like force yourself to keep working with the same subject matter because it's so easy to all of a sudden see some work and it's like, man, 
this generative piece is incredible. I'm going to learn how to code today. Or, man, I'm going to learn how to do this. Like, in real life paintings, they take months, sometimes years. I could sit down and neglect everything in life and finish a painting in a week. Maybe even a, a, a couple of days, to be honest. And that's, there's, of course, good things about that and really bad things too, you know? It's like you don't get to develop your style before you move on to the next big thing. So it was a dual, dual notion thing where I wanted people to recognize me for these dogs, but not necessarily because of the subject matter, but also because of the application. And I also wanted to force myself to have the discipline to develop this style and see how far I could take it because, uh, you know, the temptations of switching it up so fast are very apparent and very easy, especially in the digital age. Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I suffer from that. And I think you actually put the nail on the head with discipline. It takes some a certain amount of discipline to actually just stick with one sort of series and then kind of take it to its kind of conclusion. Uh, and it's very interesting what you say about speed, too, which is totally a quality, I'd say, of digital art. So I'm wondering to myself here, I mean, I also come out of painting and I kind of learned, you know, in a, it seemed like you learned in an academic style. Like when I look at your painting and it's kind of like, you know, because I see a lot of these browns and almost like underpainting and it kind of works really well with that you know when you do more than the boston dynamics dog but it works really well with it because you get kind of a natural contrast there so i guess what i'm wondering to myself i guess first of all is do you still pick up your paintbrushes because i just find it hard to justify when it's they're right there and i keep meaning to but it's like why am i doing that when i can just lift up a ipad and get right to work and like you say make something pretty quickly I unfortunately do not. Um, painting takes forever. Just just getting the setup and uh, dealing with solvents and having a space, no matter how clean you think you are. So I went to school for art. I, I learned how to paint. It was a focus on painting and printmaking, but I neglected the printmaking. And um, I, I don't really have time to paint in real life. But also my daytime job, you know how like it's it's a funny trope. Well, it's it's not so funny. It's kind of messed up. But when people kind of blow up on Web three, and it's it's mostly artists, not not builders or developers, or they say they quit their day job so they can put hundred percent into NFTs. Like that's amazing. It's inspirational. But also, you could tell a lot of these people have not been in crypto as a whole for more than one cycle. Um, my day job is incredible. <laughs> I love what I do for a living and I actually deal with art every day. I, I feel that I'm, I'm one of the few lucky ones. Um, I'm actually a pretty successful tattooer. So even though the expression isn't there because I feel that tattooing is more like a craft, I still do get to deal and focus with art every day and see clients and in between working like an actual real life job that demands a lot. Um, and, you know, of course, personal time at home, digital painting was probably the best thing for me. Um, maybe in the future, if I ever slow down on tattooing, I can focus back on real life painting. I'm, I'm worried that I've lost a lot of my dexterity. You know, you can only 
edit and go back so much and the color dropper is like the best thing ever you know i remember spending hours just trying to get a tone right or a, a value correct only to put it on and know that oh shit this is wrong so digital painting has made me incredibly lazy just like how the iphone and social media and everything else has made everyone lazy we're lazier but we're more efficient so i've i've said this before but in a lot of ways you know, the iPad, Procreate, digital art, it solves a lot of problems for people who come from a traditional art background. As much as I kind of miss, uh, you know, getting my hands dirty and picking up the paintbrush and doing all of that, you know, I don't have to worry about cleaning up a mess and making my girlfriend pissed off that I made a mess in the kitchen or that I have to like run to work and I don't have time to clean it up. So for me, it's been kind of a a blessing to to have like nfts as a, a place to uh you know to to push my work i feel if the nft market went to absolute zero uh, i also think that most of my friends on here would be gone but if it went to zero um i would still paint and this wasn't something that i took serious years ago i don't know if the tech wasn't ready or uh, the apps were not ready because I was painting in college over 10 years ago. I'm probably a lot older than a lot of the people in this space. You know, you hear these crazy stories of like 15 year olds making these incredible NFTs and having way more money than they should at that age. But um, yeah, you know, I went to college a while ago and it's just, it, I couldn't have imagined how tactile and how, painterly and quote-unquote realistic realistic in the sense that it's it's a it looks like a real painting as opposed to like the real image you know uh how far it's gotten you know and so easy I've, I've seen people do amazing pieces with procreate on their phone using their finger or maybe a small stylus i'm like i can't do that well that is a super interesting point you bring up which is this whole idea of basically and it, it really is centered a lot around procreate with you know these brushes you know and how incredible they are like i mean there are some pretty nice brushes in photoshop there are you know around but procreate itself really kind of pushed the envelope on the brushes and getting those just that beautiful texture to the point where i think most of us who work with physical uh, materials I mean, it's really hard to go back to physical materials when you have brushes on Procreate that kind of make nicer brush, you know, emulation. Like, uh, you know, and even just with the default ones, you know, like the technical pencil, I love it. It's just so beautiful. I wish I could find a physical pencil that, you know, made mark like that, made, made marks like that. So uh, do you have any thoughts on the technology? Was Do you think, does that ring true at all for you? Um, yeah, of course, of course, everything's just getting more streamlined and easier to use. You know, 10 years ago, if you wanted to digitally paint, you would have to have a crazy strong laptop, uh, Wacom and uh, Photoshop. And I feel that it's, I, I love art. I love traditional art. One of my favorite things to do is to go to a, a museum. Like my favorite art cannot be replaced by NFTs as of yet. I don't want to say anything like that. Because I really love like uh, installation and um, pieces of art that are taken off the wall or the pedestal where the, the viewer also becomes a part of it, right? Like, how, how do you create an NFT 
that's like the equivalent of walking through one of like Richard Serra's pieces where you're just walking through these giant iron walls or like you walk into like the Tate Modern into the turbine room and you see like a giant yellow sun being projected on the wall. It's like NFTs are not there yet and you can't experience that at home. You still have to go somewhere physically. And another thing to be said about digital painting is that this day and age with the way social media plays into everything, most of us saw paintings in our textbook growing up. And this day and age, we're seeing paintings through our phones and through our laptops. As nice as it would be to romanticize the traditional artists, if I was to make a physical painting, 99.99% of people are going to see it through a screen anyways. You're not going to see the paint strokes up close. You're not going to smell the terpenoid or any of the oils or see any of the textures. You're going to see it through your phone. So I have no qualms about painting digitally because it just takes that step out of it. And it was always so hard taking a photo of your damn painting when you're done. You know, but, it's, um, it's interesting that you, you bring that up because, you know, back in the you know, 2000 teens, uh, when social media was starting to blow up, when the iPhones were available, and when everyone was kind of like getting on board with this whole, like having social media on your phone, all of my friends who are artists, including myself, like Instagram was the place where you could have a huge audience or like the potential for a huge audience. And I know that it affected my work in a very particular way, which was I noticed that a lot of the small details that I would put in my paintings, you couldn't enjoy them through the phone or through a screen. And I started to work more graphically and get more of like this. And at the time I was kind of getting into street art. And so the two kind of coalesced into a new style that I, that I formed, which was to make it really punchy and, and easy to enjoy, you know, looking through, through a phone. But then I started, you know, I was very interested in showing my work in person because like, you know, like you've noted, like there's no replacement for seeing stuff in person. And so what I wanted to do was, you know, I was, I was thinking about what you're saying here. I, you bring up this great point, which is like a lot of the great art that we see is in a textbook or it's in print somewhere. And I remember going to museums in Chicago and I had went to the Louvre and I saw all these artworks that I had only ever seen in print. And some of them, it would surprise me. Like some of them, I would expect the effect in person to be different than what I imagined just looking at these images all these years in a textbook. And I remember seeing some Van Goghs in a museum and just like totally blew me away. I was like, oh, there's more to this work than just, you know, this you know, the, the elements of line and color and form that he was using in his paintings. There's like texture here. There's a lot going on. And it made me want to do something with my own work, which was, you know, how do I make this easy to enjoy on a phone where you want to see it in person, but then there's that kind of X factor, which you can't get through the phone. And I started using things that were like metallic, uh, you know, metallic mediums. I, I was using like glitter that you could buy at the store. I was using all these things that would um, have an effect with light that couldn't be enjoyed in print or on a phone. And I feel like with uh, NFTs kind of entering my life, the opposite is kind of happening where 
Now the pendulum is going the opposite way. I want for the maximum enjoyment to be driven through a screen. How, how do you like, what are your thoughts on this, this effect? I, I know for a fact that technology dictates our experience and consumption of art and media. Um, for instance, with music, Spotify has changed the way music is produced. Now music has to, like you say, has to be able to grab a person immediately. A hundred percent. Like you, you have to be able to attract someone's ear in like a matter of seconds before someone just easily just skips and glosses over. So it, it changes the way we listen to music. It changes the way people produce music and it changes the way we enjoy it. And the same thing is going to be said about art in a sense where we have to kind of go with the zeitgeist of what's going on, love it or hate it. It's just a matter of fact, you know, I think people have been dealing with that ever since the dawn of society and humans as a whole. Um, and I do agree with you on the thing where when you go to school and you see these old textbooks and you see the Monet and the Picasso's and the Dollies and the Rothko's, it's like you're literally just looking at a small picture of the actual piece. And I didn't really appreciate a lot of that art until I saw it in real life. Um, maybe it's the setting, it's the lighting. Maybe it's just because you're standing in front of a, a, a white wall with the piece in front of it displayed the way that the artist intended. But I feel that's like kind of like the biggest gap right now with NFTs is that the displays have not caught up yet. You know, we see those memes where it's like iPads taped to a wall and it's like, oh, look at my NFT. And it's like, I think that's also another reason why people don't take NFTs serious yet, you know. In fact, the only reason anyone takes NFTs serious is those beeples and those high high volume sales. Other than that, I think a lot of us would just be in our little bubble, just making artwork, you know. Yeah. But the technology. Oh, please continue. No, no, no. Go, go ahead. I was just gonna say that it, it's funny how certain things are limited, though. It's like, you know, with the tech changing, it's now more of an immersive experience too, where you can see like an animation where now the artist is like an animator and a cinematographer, and there's also sound involved in a lot of pieces that I can't do with just my static paintings alone and like gif art and glitch art and all that stuff it's like you know we're we're carving new paths and new trajectories and art that probably wouldn't even be considered right now if it wasn't for the nft space and how people are trying to innovate and you know use what they have 100 percent. yeah i i know that um one of the things that i've i've got on my back burner in terms of what I want to do with digital art these days is to bring it to a, an in-person show. And I know that uh, Chumasco, who's uh, listening right now, he's he's done great work in Seattle to do exactly that. Um, and I think more of that is going to happen. Uh, and it's going to, you know, continue to push the evolution of what we're doing with NFTs. And I kind of want to return to this, this, uh, this Boston dynamics motif that you use, because I, it's just kind of, when I see it, it's that aha moment, because what we're dealing with so much is this intersection of art and technology. And, you know, I feel like the creativity you you've, 
you really like nailed the creativity because what I've always understood is like, you know, creative, the most creative things happen between binaries, you know? And so with us, we do have this binary, which is this cultural, you know, one extreme or the other, which is like, there's the web three idealists who think, you know, you know, we're who are well aware of this technology being completely new and that what we're doing is this like, incredibly new thing and that the technology is itself like this this liberating x factor that will kind of guarantee you know self-autonomy uh and then there's the other side of that which is mostly you know uninformed people or people who've been burned by nfts or these outsiders who don't really know what's going on who see who see the technology as kind of a hoax and kind of the art as being baseless. And they, they just think it's ridiculous that people would buy JPEGs. And I feel like a lot of the artists in our space are dealing with these kind of tropes and, and satirizing them like Uxine definitely, you know, caught dealing JPEGs and you with the Boston Dynamics dog, it's this perfect vehicle of satire. Um, and, you know, there's there's already been so much writing, whether we're aware of it or not, on the topic of artificial intelligence and machine versus human. And I just feel like this dog is this perfect vehicle for the subtext of a fear of the technology or this critique of the technology. And it's interesting to me that you say, you know, you do really deal with the subject matter perfectly, which is that you allow the viewer to make their own uh you know, their own conclusions about the work. You're not, you're not like trying to shove some sort of like message down people's throats. You know, the dog is usually just kind of like, you're not showing the dog like killing somebody or something like that. You're not making like a stance. And I just think it's brilliant. Thank you. I think the easiest analogy with uh, Boston Dynamics Dog is to think of it as AI, uh, AI art actually where it's so divisive, where people who are, I don't want to say informed, but, you know, you have like the Claire Silvers of the world, uh, evangelists for AI art, who make AI art and, you know, share it. And it, it is an art, um, just like photography, collage art, all that stuff. But the Boston Dynamics dog is a perfect analogy for that because it's going to happen. These dogs will exist they already exist you can buy different versions of it scaled down um not from boston dynamics but from a host of other uh tech companies do you know how much they cost it's gonna, i think like seventy thousand, but you can't buy one you i think boston dynamics leases them out uh my goal is to eventually have one if i can trick my girlfriend into letting me have that at the house it's just like a really fancy Roomba. But um, it's like a perfect analogy, right? Where it's like, it's going to happen. And you could just sit there and argue about it and be upset about it. Or you can educate yourself about it, be informed and make your conclusion. You know, if you don't want to, like for me personally, I love AI art. I know a lot of amazing artists that make incredible work that even, even though I use it myself, I still have no idea how they did it. It's like, it's insane. The outputs that people can make. And I, <clears throat> I, I don't use it anymore because I wanted to slow down with my work, but I'm aware of it and I appreciate it. And 
the same thing with the dog in all these weird settings where it's 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 gonna happen it's already here you can learn about it and then have your opinion on it and if you don't like it don't use it but if you do enjoy it and you find some value from it then use it and you know just i'm sure there is all this pushback with with any type of monumental technological advancement you know with uh anything from like the printing press to automobiles to i mean literally the internet you know so it's yeah it's it's happening it's there we're part of it i don't know how this is all going to end but you know they're not going to stop making it and people aren't going to stop making ai art it's just going to get better and same thing with the boston dynamics dog it's you come to your own conclusion towards it, you know? But um, back to something we were talking about earlier about the maybe like the seeing stuff, the the physical display of art. I feel that people invalidate invalidate art sometimes because maybe the artist's hand wasn't involved with the piece. But if you look at like the most expensive works of art that or some of the most expensive works of art being sold um, if the artist doesn't touch it, it's worth that much more, right? Andy Warhol didn't so like, touch a lot of his his work. I mean, geez, you think Jeff Koons is right. uh, making those yeah, sculptures those or those paintings? But I think the thing is, with those artworks, people don't associate the lack of the artist's hand in the work as much as they do with something like AI, where you're, you know, touching a keyboard, and the art is there, there's the there's the obvious disconnect. Whereas with like that physical work and the paintings there isn't an obvious disconnect. And I don't think everyone who sees that work, at least people who are kind of like not really in the art community or artists themselves, they don't really see that right away because it's not the most obvious thing when you look at a Jeff Koons or a Damien Hurst or something like that. Yeah, no, totally. I was talking more in the context of uh, displaying. Oh, I got you. Yeah, um, yeah like, you know, if you go to um, the Broad in downtown LA, there's a huge wall with like uh, a Coons painting and that's hand painted, but it's hand painted by underpaid college students, not Jeff himself. And I feel with like displaying some NFTs, like for instance, the spot paintings, um, what would happen if I found a really, you know, maybe not having someone physically paint it for me, like a factory, but like a really high quality print of some sort, or I don't even know if they can make oil painting prints or anything like that. I don't know where the tech is on that. But when people see it, and especially with NFTs, I think like the physicality of the artwork is taken into the factory where it's like, oh, it's just a picture or, oh, it's just, you know, anyone can do that. Or it's it's something on a screen, but because like a a traditional piece of art is like a tangible physical thing that you could touch, so I'm sorry. That was just like off on a little tangent. It was something I was talking with uh, Alpha Centauri Kid about where his work, like talking about displaying it and how he screen prints his work. And like, yeah, then that it makes the physical entity somewhat more valid in the traditional art sense. Well, there is a mystique, isn't there, that comes along with that physical work. And, you know, in regard to, say, uh, you know, the technology and scene work, say on Instagram, I mean, and, you know, to Runetune and Rare's point that you're mentioning earlier, uh, the, uh, the, the biggest surprise for me uh, when I go to, when I started seeing works in the real world, I'd say first was the scale 
Like, I mean, it's such a simple thing, but to your guys's point, I mean, when you see it in a textbook, it's literally like two 10 centimeters by five centimeters. You know, maybe if you're lucky, it's 20 or 30 centimeters by 30, but it's not unless, you, you know, if you have a nice book, but not in a textbook, usually. And so, and so, you know, seeing something like one of the works that really stands out in my head is the Fornarina. Raphael's one of his last works in Rome. It's in uh, Palazzo Barberini in Rome, and it's hilarious. It's kind of like at the end of the museum. It's kind of like a classic Italian museum trick where you leave the best for last as a kind of surprise. And all of a sudden they had this Raphael, and I was like, oh, I didn't even know this this work. And it was stunning in real life. There's this kind of dark green leaves in the background. But when I went to look at it online, you would never know. Like the magic of that painting is simply just by virtue of the photography is not good enough to really capture the subtlety and the richness uh, of that. So now where did you do you use oil paints when you painted? Like, did you learn with oils and like a traditional academic sort of style with kind of like sepias underneath and then you kind of build your painting up and, you know, you know, glaze and increasingly add oil into your painting. Is that how you learned? No, actually, I didn't learn that way. Um, initially, the way I was painting, I, I used to cut my oils with so much terpenoid because the drying time was pissing me off. And anyone who's ever painted, you know that painting on a blank canvas, the tactile feel of it is completely different once you have layers on it. Um I can save anyone they want a four-year college degree on painting because on my senior year of painting, I went into my professor's office and I saw a book that was on their wall. It was by a gentleman named Arthur Stern. And the book is called How to See Color and Paint It. And it is, it is a very... I want to say even a la prima is a very methodical style of painting where it's more about color analysis and it's very, uh, very, uh, planner, planar, where it's like the shifts in colors are way more apparent than what would be considered for like hyper realism. But when you take a step back, the image makes sense. It completes itself. And then I realized when I was thumbing through the book that it was literally every, everything I learned in the last couple of years while painting was literally taken out of this book. So my my professor was just going through the book and making us do the lessons. So I was like, oh shit, I just could have skipped all this college. But it's it's very reminiscent of how I, I would think that Yuan Yuglo painted, where it was less gestural and more analytical. And um it's direct. It's like a la prima. It's it's more about using the color initially and then taking a step back and adjusting. I never really mess with the glazes. Um, the only type of mediums I used were, you know, the linseed oils to kind of get the viscosity I wanted. And of course, uh, the agents I would use to kind of speed up because oils took forever to dry. I never really liked acrylics. Um, it doesn't have that look or that luster. To me personally, uh, I've seen an incredible work with acrylics, so that's just my own personal opinion, not trying to diss anyone who uses acrylics, but there's just something about an oil painting that, you know, it's, it's, it's our idea of what a painting looks like through indoctrination where you've just seen so many of these classic masterworks that are paintings that have lasted hundreds of years and 
that's what I think a painting looks like. And that's what I think of when I think of a painting is usually a nondiscreet random Renaissance masterpiece. But yeah, I've always used oils. I used acrylic maybe for one or two paintings and I never use them again. That is so interesting. I mean, I have sort of a pet theory on uh, on basically the reason, one of the reasons we love painting, almost traditional painting so much is because it's, you know, especially before technology and the screen and everything, like a hundred years ago, it was the place where you'd find the most saturated colors in your entire visual experience. You know, like where are you going to find reds like that in the regular everyday life? You know, and so and just like these incredible violets. So, I kind of have this. My sense is that color, you know, really, it. I kind of, you know, color for me is a little bit the magic of art. A little bit. A lot of it resides in color, of all things. Uh, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Color is very easy to digest for people who do not, or maybe don't have the vocabulary to talk about art. Um, other than the surface, color is usually the first thing, you know, color, scale, all that stuff. Um, I think like as a species or as animals, we, we are in tune to color, you know, they're, they're warning signs or it's something pretty, it's something exotic, flowers, it's all over nature. And, um, yeah, for sure. The, the color of this work and, you know, think about when these paintings were being done, it's like the average person was like a peasant literally and you would see these monumental pieces of artwork that were just scenes from the bible being depicted and yeah you would see the most insane colors you know color is something that i feel that we i don't want to say take for granted you know it's it, it's not that long ago but I, I think you're right it is the color uh which is funny because i'm pretty monochromatic in real life i don't wear a lot of color my personal work of tattooing, I don't use a lot of color, but for painting, it's, yeah, it's fun. It's nice. It invokes emotion. It's, it's a way to lead the eye around a piece or force the viewer to see something. That's such an interesting point. And I'm the same. I'm pretty monochromatic in my uh, dress uh, on a daily basis, but yeah. And, you know, when I think of like some of my most amazing color experiences, I think of, I don't know, I mean, not to get too, uh, fluent here but the the fra angelico the coronation of the virgin and it's probably like in the 14th century thir you know 1300s or something in the louvre and it's like i'll never forget that experience and the blues these insane blues and kind of light blues uh yeah to your point like when most people were just kind of you know quote unquote peasants out there to see something like that must have just been like a knock your socks off experience, like almost a religious, you know, experience. You know, the the piece that does that for me. Are are you familiar with uh, Olafur Ellison? He's a like an installation type artist. Yeah, I know the name. I'm trying to think of works that he's done, but yeah, huge name. So he has a a piece that he did for the Tate Modern in 2003. It's called uh, the Weather Project, and if you look at this piece, it's insane. Uh, looking at photos, of course, doesn't know justice, but it's literally the turbine room in the Tate Modern, and there's this giant yellow ball in the sky that looks like the sun, 
And if you look at the photos of it, it's it's people's like it's silhouettes of people standing and staring at this. It's literally a religious experience. And you can see people laying down in the turbine hall, staring up. And I feel that that's probably kind of what people were feeling when they were seeing paintings for the first time. Like um this color is just it's yeah, it's all natural, it's all in the real world, but you're seeing it out of the context of what you would normally see it, just amplified a thousand times. I'm looking online right now, and I actually recommend everybody to go just do a search on Oliver Ellison Weather Project. That is pretty, uh, it looks like a pretty epic, uh, I guess you'd call that an installation. <laughs> it looks, and it's very simple, too. Does anybody have any questions? Does anybody want to uh, request to speak and ask Rare here in our closing minutes? Feel free to request, and either me or one of the other co-hosts will bring you up here. Uh, Rune Tune, do you have any questions or as we close out here? No, this is a brilliant uh, conversation. Um, I've, I've really enjoyed uh, everything you've had to, to say, Rare. Thanks for uh, coming on. I know it's super early where you are. Oh, yeah. No, I, I wouldn't have missed this. I, I literally paint in the morning with uh, Adrian's YouTube videos in the background. It's like I'm having a conversation with him, but it's just him talking about artwork. That is too hilarious. And you've been very generous with the retweets and saying nice things about the show, which really helps because your audience is growing rare and it's pretty awesome to watch and to see. I mean, as we close this down, I mean, what are your thoughts on the market? Like, it, it feels like it's it feels like it's heating up on Tezos at least. I mean, what is your, or just generally speaking, do you have any thoughts on the market? I feel that being with the NFTs and all that stuff, we're kind of insulated from the overall crypto market um, because, you know, one ETH is worth one ETH. So if you're doing well in NFTs, you're doing well, period, um, regardless of how the overall crypto scene is going. Um, I... This is going to sound kind of bad, but I, I kind of wish the bear market would keep going. I think we're in a bull trap. I think this is, uh, I think it's it's going to go back down, everything. Um, but the art's going to still be there because people are going to buy art. And I think enough cycles have passed that everyone knows that the, the financial gains are made during the bear market. You know, if you stuck around from the bear market from 2018 to now, you would be considered an OG. People were buying CryptoPunks for less than an ETH, you know? And, you know, we repeat our mistakes, but now we actually have a history to go back on. And there's going to be a lot of people that are going to make work no matter what. The It's amazing to see the recognition that the Tezos artists are getting now. I don't want to just say Tezos artists, just artists in general, but it's, you know, I was shouting for a month, a, I'm sorry, a year, months about how the art's amazing on Tezos. And I I don't know, it's exciting because, you know, with everything going on in the overall space, we should be all wrecked and no one should be making any artwork. But here we are. It seems like the builders are building and the artists are painting, the collectors are collecting. And, you know, it's like we're we're insulated. We're we're in our little sphere and it being a bubble or not, it's, you know, it's it's gonna, it's gonna just, keep going absolutely and i totally share your sentiment of this idea of the bull market uh you know or of the bear market and kind of enjoying it and i'm in no rush either and you know what like if you're an artist and you're starting to move work uh 
you know, a bull market could wreck everything. It could change the narrative and everything like it's and it's kind of gloriously small. Like you were saying, I think at the start of this conversation, it's maybe a couple of thousand people. You know, like I, I feel like weirdly I have a not bad sense of what's going on an object. And that's like a feels like a big part of like the Internet NFT situation. And then, you know, there's super rare and there's foundation and then you see it on Twitter. I mean, so surprisingly, it's uh, you still find new artists all the time, but it's surprisingly easy to actually kind of have maybe not easy, but you can have a sense of what's going on. Um, well, we're at the end. I, I would have loved to have brought on, we, I brought on a couple of speakers here just at the very end. Mars or Acorn, do you have any burning questions that you want to ask as we, uh, Mars, I see. Do, do you have a burning question for where? I do. Well, you know, I have a follow-up. Man, I love the idea about the Boston dog, Yeah, uh, you know, representing AI, because I'm an AI artist and host of AI Art Today, and you know, that, that you know, as soon as I saw your work, I thought the same thing <laughs> because uh, it, it's kind of crazy, you know, the misinformation out there about AI and, um, you know, with all the lawsuits and saying that it's theft. And um, but anyway, it's just crazy out there. I just love that idea, though. I appreciate it. And yes, Ellison is amazing. Just real quick. I went to an installation of his at the Dallas Museum of Art. All it was, you walked into a room that was lit with a certain type of yellow light that made everything turn black and white. It was like stepping into a black and white movie. It was like taking drugs. It was so disorienting and so amazing. Um, and it was just the use of light. Thanks guys. That is so cool. It makes like, I'd heard of Olafur Ellison before, but, I mean, that's what's so great about conversations like this is it really just brings it to the fore. Well, thank you to everybody. Acorn, come by next week and you'll be first up as far as speakers. Uh, Rare, thank you for joining us cool. today and Rune Tune, your excellent co-hosting. And thank you, everybody, for showing up. Uh, it means a lot. And we'll see you next week, same time, same place. Take care, everyone. And thank you to everybody. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you, guys. All right. We'll see you guys. I'll put on some music as we all t get out of here. I'm off to the gym. <laughs>